can you kindly open your Bibles <coughs> to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we will pick up our reading this morning from uh, verse 15, where am I? Yes, from verse 15, sorry, um, to the end. Um, some of you may be saying a hurrah, we finally got to the end. <laughs> we started looking at this book sometime in the year 2014. <laughs> Some of you were not even born. <laughs> so that gives you a bit of perspective of how long we stay in a book. <laughs> it wasn't because of anything except that I'm still slow preaching. It took long to get there. I'm sure that Don and Dem will do this in like a month or two. Punch through it. But we have been going through this uh, by God's grace, and, that's, and, I, and I think I want, to, I want to reaffirm what's been said. This is the focus of this church, to preach expository, to preach the books, through the book, um, and not just uh, do hit and run preaching. So we want to reinforce that because I think it's important that we all realize that um, God's word is something we need to take in consistently in ways we can understand and then apply it to our lives as we understand these truths. And so we pray for commitment to obedient hearts as God's word is preached faithfully from this pulpit. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 16 and verse 15 says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. To the churches of Asia, or rather the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write these greetings with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you again that we are able to open your word freely and be able to speak from it without hindrance, able to delve into your word and by the illumination of the Holy Spirit gain understanding of what has been left on the record for us. We thank you that you, through your apostle, wrote to a church that was in dire need of correction and admonition and encouragement. And Father, we believe that we are a like church today, that our lives is in, in, in such a state in so many ways that many of us require admonition and many of us need to be corrected and we know that none of us is spared that. Many of us need to be encouraged in these days when we find ourselves and we pray that as we hear these words this morning from your word, that we will be encouraged to know that our God is sovereign and he has made 
uh, he's catered for the needs of his people in all ages. And so we thank you for this, that you are a God who's relevant, a God who's real, and a God who loves us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is Role Models, Harmony, and Encouragement. And it's really the three sections that uh, I see here, which I've just rolled together and made it the title, because this is a, the, the last uh, section of a, a salutation in an epistle. And it's kind of sometimes looked at very um, clinically. And so it's well, Paul is just rolling, um, rounding up his epistle, and so therefore it's kind of just going through the motions to bring it to an end. But fortunately for us, the apostle doesn't do that. He consistently teaches right to the very end. Right until the very last words written here, he consistently teaches and corrects and admonishes and encourages. And so, we see that he uh, gets into this final straight by again appealing to them, by saying, now I urge you brothers. He doesn't just kind of let it slip into the background. He is driving for their attention. And so he addresses them as brothers, and that refers to the entire church. He's not only speaking to the men in the church, he's speaking to all in the church. That is a, a, a pronoun used for everybody. So when it's used in that way, Paul is addressing the entire church, and he says, I'm appealing to you. I want to encourage you to take notice of what I'm about to say. I urge you to hear what I'm about to say. And he says... You know that the house of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. Paul is about to encourage them with direct reference to a very specific family. He has identified a family that he found to be noteworthy. The family is identified by the head of this family, the senior man in this family. And Paul refers to this man twice in the next four verses. First, he in verses 15 to 16 as encouragement to submit to those who serve selflessly. And then in verses 17 to 18, he refers to the same man to recognize those who refresh the saints spiritually. And that man is, of course, Stephanus. Uh, we've come across this man before. If you were here in 2014, you know that we touched on one, chapter 1, verse 16, and there Paul says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And as Paul introduced the epistle, he already recognized this man as one of those few who he baptized. And here, at the end of the epistle, he identifies this man as one of his first converts. In fact, the first, his family was the first converts in Achaia. And so this man had a significant um, place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. You see the Apostle's pastoral heart really coming out and remembering those who were in the church because of the privilege he had of sharing the gospel with them. And so they were saved and became part of the flock. And many, like this man, not only became part of a church, but became a personal co-worker with the Lord Jesus, with, with the Apostle Paul, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this man was a co-worker of the Apostle, and he was also one of the Apostle's first converts in Achaia. 
And Paul had a particularly special love for this family because of this situation. And like the house of Chloe, which Paul also mentioned in this epistle, um, this man, Stephanus, was a, um, was a valuable um, source of information regarding the church in Corinth, but also was a link to that church for the Apostle Paul. He is a prominent believer in this church, together with Crispus and Gaius, uh, who uh, Paul mentioned in chapter 1. And so Paul couldn't be everywhere all the time, and his heart was with the churches he had planted all over Asia. And so with men like these, he knew he had a presence in amongst the flock that he longed to be with. And we know Paul longed to be there because so many times Paul said in this letter, I will see you. When winter comes, I'm going to winter with you. I'm going to stay with you. We've gone over this already. And Paul longed to get back to Corinth. And he was going to Corinth, but he wasn't there quite yet. Stephanus was a trusted friend, but more than this, he was a strong, encouraging role model in the church at Corinth. Hence, the title, Role Models for this section. And the example that uh, this family presented was one of selfless service. This was a striking family, uh, enough that Paul mentions them uh, very clearly. And so in this first section, uh, I've got two subdivisions. One is uh, submit to those who serve, and the next one will be relating to recognizing uh, those who uh, bring refreshing. There's two striking words in this passage, the word devoted and the word service. So Paul has said that very clearly. And I repeat, this family uh, were the first converts in the Kaya that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The word devoted means to do something in a way which is, requires commitment, but it's not just committed to do something that comes your way. It's an orderly a structured, um, well-thought-through, well-planned way of committing to doing something, and you do it consistently, and irrespective of distractions. And uh, it's really a, a word that has uh, some of its roots in, a, in military uh, placement of people to effectively carry out what they not only are equipped to do, but what they desire to do and are willing to do. So this word is, a, is quite an all-encompassing word when it comes to service. They were devoted uh, in a way which was uh, a benefit to those who received the devotion. The second word that we see that's very noteworthy is the word service. We know that word. We have two of these men servicing the church. The word is diakonos. Here it's diakonia. It's the word of, uh, we see transliterated into the word deacon. Uh, and it's the word that we, are, that we give to men who um, selflessly, willingly, and consistently serve the saints. But the word actually, uh, in its original form, means a waiter of tables. So every time you go to a restaurant, thank the owner that they have some deacons giving you whatever you're taking to eat. It means uh, waiting on tables. But unlike um, the waiters that you have in your restaurant today, these people were slaves who waited on the master and stood by while the master and his family indulged themselves to the limit 
And they didn't eat, they didn't partake, they just stood and waited until everything was done, then they were given time and uh, freedom to partake with, of whatever was given to them. So, these people served in the way which was not only selfless, but also, um, I wouldn't say self-depreciating, but they kept themselves out of the way so that those who they served would benefit from it. This was a devoted family who served well. And Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 how to recognize the deacons. So I think, let's look at that, because I think there's something about what Paul writes there that helps us to recognize what this family was in the church. And I'm going to get back to that. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 8, Paul says, This deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith of the clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise, likewise must be dignified. So even here, in 1 Timothy, Paul brings uh, the wife, part of the family, into this service from which the church will benefit. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Their deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So, be clear. Uh, it's not a role that is just a, a one-man show. It's the man bringing his entire household uh, to the service. And he can do that only as well, in a sense, as his family, particularly his wife, gives him space to do this. Very often we find that uh, those of us who have served in various capacities, not only in the capacity of, of deacons, that uh, we have a tension when we want to serve the Lord and meet and fulfill demands of the family. And while wives and children don't necessarily intend becoming an obstacle, just by the nature of what families are, they do. And you have find yourself torn between, do I do this because I'm, I'm, I've committed to the church, or do I fulfill my commitment here and we're making a choice, which we should not be making because... Our wives and our household should be supporting us in this work and giving us the space to do what the Lord has called us to do. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul has very clearly defined what a deacon should look like, how we identify him, how he uh, functions, and then makes it clear that he does so with his entire family behind him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, the family was totally committed to serving this church. The entire family was devoted to a being of a benefit to a church in which God found them, in which God had placed them. Um, from other studies and some um, other expositories and uh, um, other books, it appears that Stephanus probably was not a, a local resident in Corinth. He was in Achaia, uh, elsewhere, and that he had moved there eventually. If that is the case, and it seems strong to be so, then his family and himself found themselves amongst people who had once been strangers, and now they play a prominent role. But rather than being kind of stuck in the corner and saying, well, I must wait till I can really fit in, they made themselves available. They made themselves known, and they served the church in a, devoted, in a devoted way. So deacons need the support of their family to be committed to serving, 
and families can minister together in serving. I know many of us see service in the church as something that the men should be doing, but you know something? If you as a wife have not sure what your gift is and what you should do, well, you can serve with your husband in many ways. And even when it comes to preaching and teaching, those husbands need the support of their wives and family to be able to be free to do that. So serve as a family. Make yourself available. Uh, impose yourself upon the church as you endeavor to bless the church by whatever gift and skill you have. Paul then makes an amazing statement. He says here as a family, they're serving, as, uh, they're serving the church. They're serving very much in a role that could in any other time be defined as, deacon, as a deacon and his family. They are serving in the same way that probably that waiters served, uh, waited on tables in, in, in rich homes. And he says, these are the kind of people you should be subject to. Think about that. This is a church that had identified super apostles. Men who were eloquent like Apollo. Men who were renowned like Cephas. Men who they thought were the guys to emulate and become by. They had made these men their mentors uh, without those men actually wanting to be that. But they had seen people that they thought, that's the person I want to subject myself to. That's who I want to be like and become. And Paul takes that very concept and turns it on his head. He says, here are people who are servants. If I didn't name them, you'd never have known about them. They worked and operated in a way which was um, less than um, elaborate. Uh, it wasn't that they weren't speaking great words. They were doing the mundane within the church. Paul says, don't be like them. He says, subject yourselves to them. And I think Paul was implying that by subjecting yourselves to men like these, and he says, every fellow worker and laborer, it means that you will become like them and serve and be of a value to a church which God has placed yourself. Remember, we had gone through the gifts, and many had aspired to the, the, the gifts that were showy, speaking in tongues, uh, prophesying, uh, being part of healing. And so these people in this church uh, had, had a vision for themselves that always was kind of above the average. Paul says, don't aim for that. Aim for below the average. Aim to be subject to people like Stephanus, his family, and other fellow workers and laborers who were purely servants in the house of God. That's a big call. Because it means that we say to ourselves that everyone else comes first. And I come lost, and by that, God is glorified. The Corinthian believers have been taken up with these men, these super apostles. They were happy to submit to men of high standing. Paul says the opposite must be practiced. The opposite is true of the lives of those who truly serve and those who truly honor Christ. So not only does Paul say to them, subject yourselves uh, to selfless service, but the second part of this, of this first 14 verses, he says, recognize those who do the work of refreshing. Verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So Stephanus is mentioned again, and this time it's one of a group of men 
that Paul singled out uh, as noteworthy. He was overjoyed at seeing them because he says, you have made up for uh, the absence of the Corinthians. Where Paul had expressed more than once his desire to be with the Corinthians. But he was unable to be there and meet with them immediately. Paul was on a trip to Corinth to collect from them the money that they had put together for the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, but Paul was, for, at this time, uh, delayed in Ephesus. He spent, spent a long time there and he was going to be there for the foreseeable future. Uh, but Paul was in Ephesus and uh, the church that he had planted, having lived there for 18 months in Corinth, uh, was on his heart. He longed to be with them. A problematic church, a church that brought much pain to his heart, but a church that he loved nonetheless. And so he longed to be with them, but he could not, and neither could they be with him. And so when these three men came, it was almost as though the whole church came. Uh, by representing the church, Paul was able to have a physical connection with people for whom he had been praying daily. And so the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Caiacus as representatives of the Corinthian church brought joy to the apostle. It is again um, seen by many that these two men, uh, Fortunatus and Caiacus, are possibly uh, freed slaves of Stephanus. Stephanus appears to have been a, a man of uh, some standing. And these men, and it goes back to the names they're given. Now, this is not, uh, I couldn't take it to a verse to show you that. But most of the popular writers seem to think that is a feasible um, situation. However, that being as it may, it was that these three men uh, came and represented the church at Corinth. And they could meet with Apostle Paul. And it brought him tremendous joy. The visit accomplished something wonderful for both, for both Apostle and the Corinthian believers. They brought spiritual refreshing. For, it says in verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Some of their presence brought the apostle a sense of peace. That word um, uh, refreshed um, is sometimes translated as, as, as um, uh, rest or peace. Um, and he was able to take rest from his concerns for a moment. I think as they came to him, and as they brought to him greetings from the church, because not everybody at Corinth was at uh, loggerheads with the apostle. There were some in the, in, the, in the Corinthian church who were supporters of the apostle, hence they wrote to him for advice and for uh, answers with questions. But somehow, when these men came, they brought refreshing with them. And I think part of it was at the Apostles' concerns about the church could be assuaged. What he had heard from other people and what he received in writing, he could now get, as so, so to speak, from the horse's mouth, from those who actually lived in Corinth and brought to him the news from Corinth. And so some of their presence brought the apostle a sense of peace and he was able to, re to rest from his concerns for a moment. The Corinthian church held a special place for the apostle and he was concerned for their well-being. The coming of these brothers with news... And their physical presence lifted the spirit of the apostle pastor. This was a pastor who was concerned about his flock and he wanted to have good news about them. They also somehow refreshed the spirit of those who were at Corinth. Because Paul says that 
They refresh my spirit as well as yours. And we don't know exactly how that rolled out. But it is possible that when they went back to Corinth, they took at least some good news back with them uh, concerning the apostles' well-being. Although that's not clear to us, it was clearly understood by the Corinthian church. And the point that is to be noted is that in a fractured and divided church, a church given to insensitive behavior, a church given to dishonoring the Lord's Supper, a church that was marred by sexual immorality, in some manner, these men brought refreshment to both the planter of the church and to the local assembly itself. Paul says that they should be recognized for this. They should be recognized for being those who were concerned about refreshing the saints. Not showing them up, not beating them down, not trying to tell them what to do, but they simply came to refresh the apostles' spirit and they were able to refresh the spirit and the hearts of the saints back home. We need to ask ourselves, what impact do we have on the local assembly in which we find ourselves? We, we need to, in the light of what Paul teaches here and elsewhere, do we serve selflessly? Do we lay a, a value on what we do by seeing what we have to give up to do what we are called to do? Once we do that, then we have missed the point of being of value to the church as servants in the church. And none of us can claim that we are not called to serve. We are here to serve so that Christ may be honored, that God may be glorified, that the church may be edified, and that we may together grow more and more in the image of our Savior. Do we serve selflessly? Or do we seek to do as little as possible? Many times, and the preacher is not excluded as being caught in saying, well, I did that last time. Someone else can do it now. We are counting. Um, we, do th- we do this at home, right? You wash the dishes now. It's, it's your turn today. Oh, I took the washing last week. It's your turn now. We can't. We lay a value to what we do because our time is valuable. Our energy is valuable to us. Uh, what we have to give up is significant because we love doing those things rather than the mundane. And that attitude, unfortunately, does creep into our spiritual lives. And so we say that, I've done enough. I've given enough. I've paid enough. I've suffered enough. I've deprived myself of more than enough. Perhaps someone else. No, we don't say that. We say, um, perhaps God will move someone else to do something now. We lay the blame at God's door. And he needs to move someone else to something because look how much I have been doing. Do we serve selfless, selflessly or do we seek to do as little as possible? Is our presence and involvement a work of refreshing or do we bring conflict and discord? When we leave the room, is there chaos? When we leave the meeting, is it discord? Have we left and hearts have been hurt rather than refreshed, we will do well to emulate the, <laughs> the Stephanasian household. The household of Stephanus. They were a model household and this man was a role model to follow. Secondly, part two, harmony. And it's really harmony in solidarity. And uh, I know we use solidarity as a... Um, raise a fist in the air kind of thing 
uh, we are solid, we are, we see solidarity in the union movement and political movement, but this is really a word which means that we are moving together, no matter what the cause may be. And here it's harmony within the flock. And Paul does this in an amazing way. As was custom before this closing section of the epistle, the apostle conveys various greetings. Warm greetings are evidence of a bond of closeness. That's what greetings are, right? They are expressions for, of longing to be together, and when meeting after a long period of absence, it expresses joy at meeting again. You know of times when you have not seen a family member or a friend for many, many years, and when you see them, your greeting is warm and overwhelming, and you pour everything into it, but you can't wait to meet them because you're going to greet against someone that you love and that is part of your inner circle of friends. And we ask ourselves, how much do we long to be together because of a love for each other founded in our union in Christ? Paul actually uses a, uh, a wonderful way of bringing out um, the closeness in the body of Christ at various levels. These respective greetings are noteworthy as each is nuanced slightly differently. And there are um, five ways which Paul nuances these greetings. And I've tried to um, do some alliteration and keep a single letter to keep us focused and unfortunately landed on the letter U to draw these uh, five things together. And so in the first place, we find in the first part of verse 19 that uh, Paul says this, the churches of Asia send you greetings. 19a, the first part. And the word that I uh, think about there is the word ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. <laughs> Harder to say than what it actually means. It simply means that uh, there's something that is found everywhere, found in a great area. It is something that is present in more than just one place. And so, by Paul saying the churches of Asia send you greetings, he's saying that there's more than just one church like yours, and they send you greetings. There's like-minded churches elsewhere, outside of Corinth, and they send you greetings. And that's a great um, word of encouragement to realize that you're not alone in this battle. You're not an isolated small group up against the rest of the world. You are part of a body that's spread far and wide. And today, spread further and wider than in the first century. But he says there are churches everywhere in Asia, and they are sending you greetings. There are churches who think like you, who uh, serve the same God, who have the same desires, who are, uh, who are shaped by the same word, and they send you greetings. The second part of verse 19 says this, uh, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in the house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So not only were the greetings ubiquitous, but greetings can be unconstrained. Here's a wonderful couple, Aquila and Prisca, and together with the church in their house, they were sending hearty greetings to the Corinthian church. We first meet this couple um, in Acts, and um, they find themselves in Corinth as they left the persecution of, uh, of Rome, uh, and Aquila being a Jew was being persecuted for being a Jew, not a Christian. Nonetheless, he ends, they end up in, in Corinth, and it's there that they come to salvation, and it's there that Paul meets them. 
When Paul at tent making himself came to Corinth, he went to see them, that's uh, Aquila and Prisca, possibly having heard of their faith in Christ. Paul lived and worked with them while founding the Corinthian church. Paul was a tent maker. You heard about tent makers in Corinth. Um, they had more than one uh, thing in common. And most likely, uh, Paul heard about them as being Christian tent makers. And so, he joins up with them. About a year and a half, um, after about a year and a half, Paul left for Ephesus and took Aquila and Priscilla with him. So Priscilla and Priscilla is the same person. This couple stayed in Ephesus when Paul left and established a church in their home, 1 Corinthians 16. So here was a couple that were, again, foreigners to Corinth, came into Corinth, uh, made a living for themselves, uh, became attached to the Apostle Paul, and had a heart for the saints at Corinth. Loved them dearly. A couple that had a... A, a, a penchant for reaching out to other saints and training them. Apollo was one of those men, a man who was renowned for his um, oratory skills, a man with a golden tongue, and yet was lacking in certain things. And this family, this couple, took him in and taught him the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so this couple, who was a notable couple, and yet played a, 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 a serving role by not only helping saints who, who didn't know much, but by opening the doors to a house and home, be a home to the saints in that area. They had a house church to where they made their, where they made their, their home open, hospitably, for those who belong to the Lord. It's these two that send greetings again back to the Corinthian church. Hearty greetings in the Lord. Number three. Paul says that these greetings are also unifying. He says in verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. He's getting a bit more specific. He's not just talking about the brothers in the church, church in, the, in Achaia. He's saying the brothers here with me in Ephesus, these specific brothers who were known to the Corinthian church. He says they are sending you greetings. This church, as fractured, as dysfunctional, as um, broken, as um, unbiblical as they were, were still loved by many. Because many saw them not as what they portrayed outwardly, but saw in them a common salvation and a common savior. So there's a unifying effect when we greet others because of a common faith. And the second part of verse 20 says, greet, another, greet one another with a holy kiss. So Paul says, the churches send greetings, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila send greetings, and the other brothers send greetings. He says, now how about you greeting each other? Greet each other. And this is significant because this was a church that was divided. Understand clearly. They were a church that were, at, were fighting, infighting that, that was uh, at a serious level. And so Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. You wonder what's a holy kiss? Have you seen a holy kiss? Have you given a holy kiss? Have you received a holy kiss? <laughs> a holy kiss is just a form of greeting. Uh, it's referred to four times in the New Testament, always by Paul. And um, it's mentioned in passing without much explanation as part of a greeting. It was holy because it was a kiss between two believers who were themselves holy. There's nothing mystical about a holy kiss. When you and I shake hands, we have a holy handshake. When you and I hug, we have a holy hug. 
Um, it's, the kiss itself wasn't mystical. It was given significance because of people who were embracing, were doing so because of a common savior, a common belief, a common love for each other. Paul was simply saying to the believers, greet each other with true affection that should be displayed between persons who have been sanctified. The kiss was sanctified because the kisses were sanctified. It didn't come with special colored hearts or music in the background. It just happened. Because this was their cultural way of greeting. You know that many cultures have different ways of greeting. Some shake hands, some kiss, some kiss three times, some kiss on the neck. The universal greeting is bump an elbow. I'm not sure if you ever get a holy elbow bump, but nonetheless, bump an elbow. We're going to have a generation very soon who have, will have no idea what it means to shake a hand. Just bump an elbow. So note something very carefully. The greeting that is being given is not a request. Now, other than this, Paul has been using verbs that are just indi- in- indicating what was taking place. It was indicative. This is an imperative. And Paul says to him, kiss each other with a holy kiss. Greet each other with a holy kiss. So there's something that has to be done in person, right? I dare you, I challenge you to greet each other in this way online. I challenge you to relate to the body of Jesus Christ in this way with a physical greeting online. A digital greeting doesn't cut the master. Kiss each other, greet each other with a holy kiss. And then finally, Paul says in verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and that statement by by Paul makes this greeting unequivocal. You cannot dispute it. Paul says the greetings that have been sent to you are real. They're not imagined. And not only are they being conveyed with sincerity, I'm writing this with my own hand, that it is sincere. And my greeting is also with a sincere hand. Paul leaves no doubt as to how this church was considered by the rest of those in the body of Christ. These greetings were true, and Paul was the author of what was being written. And these greetings show the commitment of people who were separated by miles geographically, levels of uh, Christian life uh, in many ways, and yet there was a committed harmony amongst them, and that harmony was being maintained by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, because only he can maintain that harmony and that unity. And the external expression of that was sending and receiving of greetings that was evidence of love and um, sincere desire amongst the saints. And finally, we get to first section number three, encouragement. The Apostle Paul closes his letter to the Corinthian church with, a, with final words of encouragement. He encourages him with the prospect of the soon return of the Lord Jesus, echoing chapter 15, verse 50, uh, to the end of that chapter. He reminds him of the grace of the Lord Jesus, and he expresses his love for all who are in Christ Jesus. And with with this triple focus on the blessings we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the reading of the first part of verse 22 comes across as rather jarring. The first part of verse 22 is almost 
to our minds out of place. It kind of doesn't fit with this closing section. And it says this, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Apostle Paul has just spoken about a family that should be emulated because of their service and love. He's just spoken about greetings that have been offered as indicative of love. And he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. The precise meaning of this word accursed is hard to come by. I know we use it, and like many words we use because we know where to place it, but we never think very deeply about what it means. It's only used six times in the New Testament, five times by the Apostle Paul. The use of this word in Acts is used in a very specific way. And of the five times Apostle Paul uses this word accursed, he uses it twice in this letter. Um, it does not seem to be used whether it's in this letter or in Galatians or in Romans. It does not seem to be used in relation to the unsaved, but is used hypothetically to believers and angels in Galatians 1. And to Paul himself in Romans 3. It's, it's a word which we know it's got a, 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 a sound to it that is negative. It's wrong. But Paul uses it in relation to those in the church. And juxtaposing it here with the word Maranatha emphasizes the harshness of the condition of the one in this position. And perhaps the, the reminder that the Lord is at hand which is often taken to mean is coming soon, could help give meaning to this word, accursed. As he closes this letter, Paul seems to be drawing from the broadest subjects he has dealt with in the epistle already. So just think about this. For example, in the chapter here, he refers to Apollos and Stephanus, who appear early in this book. So he, he keeps drawing from what he has already taught them as he closes as epistle. He keeps taking them back to what has been touched on. He instructs him in verse 14 of this chapter to let all you do be done in love. You remember chapter 13 about love? So again he says, remember that he said that uh, love should be the, the, the overriding, overarching uh, attribute of your life. Well, he speaks about it here again in his closing uh, chapters. He tells him to greet each other with a holy kiss. The exact opposite what is described in the opening chapters of them being divided. So Paul draws from what he's said to them already and kind of uh, summarizes it in these comments. And if you don't look at them carefully, they kind of just go over your head. But they are there. They're embedded in Paul's closing statements, his closing salutation of reminding them of where he's taken them. And perhaps he's doing the same here by placing anathema, which is accursed, and maranatha side by side. They should be seen together, even though in the, in the original text they are separate sentences. They're separated by a full stop. But they should be placed side by side. To explain this, just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, please. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read to you from verse 11 a few verses. To see if we can see the Apostle Paul is perhaps going back and trying to say something here that he has said before. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He's speaking to the saints, right? This is not work as we find out amongst the unsaved. This is the work of the saints. 
If the work that anyone has built, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. It's about the giving of rewards. If anyone's work is burned up, that's because it was built with wood and hay and straw, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Salvation guaranteed, uh, the record of your works burnt up, but only as through fire. Paul clearly lays out what awaits the believer when the Lord comes. Maranatha, the Lord's present, but the Lord also is coming. He clearly lays out what's going to happen at the beamer, the judgment seat of Christ, when the rewards will be dispensed. Remember that when we are taken home, whether through the portal of death, but when we are all raised, but when those who are dead are raised, and when we are changed and we are taken home, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sin, not to be condemned, not to be destined for hell and destruction and damnation, but to be given the rewards. Uh, our salvation is not in view. Our works after salvation is what's in view. And we will receive rewards. And some will receive big rewards. And some will receive lesser rewards. And some may receive no rewards. And every one of us will be totally satisfied with the reward that we receive because it will be given to us in a perfect place by a perfect Savior who judges, who judges righteously and with justice and measures out what is due to those under whom uh, uh, or who has been under him uh, since the day of their salvation. So, the rewards will be based on how believers have built on the foundation, which is Christ. Building correctly on this foundation implies a close, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who have a close, personal relationship relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior gets to participate in the Beamer rewards. Look at what uh, Paul, look at the word that Paul uses back in chapter 16 verse 22. Let's go back to 16 verse 22 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, uh, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be a curse. Paul says, if anyone has no brotherly affection for the Lord, that's the word love there, it's phileo. It's the word brotherly affection. It's not the word agape, which he uses later. This is the word, are you close enough to the Lord in a way which is brotherly, a close personal uh, relationship? And it's possible that Paul says that those in Corinth, and by extension us and other readers of this epistle, who fail in keeping a close and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, will fail to receive rewards of gold, silver, and precious stones when the Lord comes, Maranatha, but instead have been set aside. That's another translation of the word uh, accursed, anathema, to be set aside for a lesser reward since we built on the foundation with things that would be burnt up. Therefore, uh, verse 22 is both a warning and an encouragement to those who belong to the Lord. Paul is not looking at those who are unsaved. Paul is closing this epistle speaking to the saints whom he loves. And so we are the ones who would um, be found wanting if we fail to live in a way which uh, is a reflection of our personal, close, loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, finally, verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. A general greeting expressed by the apostle desires that they continue to enjoy the favor and blessings from the Lord Jesus. And then he says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. 
a final and specific commendation from the Apostle to the Corinthian church and to all who read this epistle. As that is written, uh, my love be with you all, all who are in Christ Jesus, it means that not only is he extending and commending his love to those who are receiving this letter, but all those who read this letter, and remember that these letters were passed around amongst churches so that all could benefit from the inspired writing of the apostle. And he says to all those who read this letter, that would include us. So this morning we're sitting here, the year 2021, and the, Paul, and the apostle Paul wrote this in the first century, and the love that he commends to them, he commends to us too, in Christ Jesus. And that concludes uh, our study of 1 Corinthians, ending on an extremely high note. It started on a high note, as Paul reminded of, of who they were and why they were what they were, and it ends on a high note. The grace of God, the love of a, of a loving pastor, and the harmonious relationship possible for the saints as they await the rewards in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the timelessness of your word. We thank you that indeed as we open your word in a world that is taken up with modernity and new things and changing things, that your word remains the same. And I pray that as we consider your word today and, and always, that we will allow you to shape our lives, our hearts, our minds, our decisions, and the way we see this world, that we see through the word, through the eyes of Christ, and through the light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.